Hi and welcome to Terra.do's climate podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, sustainability, conservation and many more. Today's guest is Aarti Kumar Rao. Aarti is a National Geographic explorer, an independent environmental photographer, writer and artist documenting the slow violence of ecological degradation. She has crisscrossed the South Asian subcontinent following a single story, across seasons to chronicle South Asia's changing landscapes and climate. Her work has appeared in well-known Indian and international outlets from National Geographic to the Hindustan Times. She communicates through photos, long-form narratives and art and is working on her first book. She's currently on a National Geographic Explorer grant to document forced human migration. I'm Keithi Manjan and I'll be your host for today. Hi, Aarti. A big welcome to you. We're super excited to have you with us. Hello. It's great to be here. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about how your career reached this part? You started off as a biophysicist. How did you get from there to becoming an extraordinary storyteller? It's funny, you know, growing up in India at that time, we did not have the option of taking a science and an arts stream simultaneously or doing some combination of it. And so I had to choose between my love for biophysics and a love for writing. Well, I chose physics. But after I completed my master's, I was working in a lab and I knew that that was just not for me. And I actually quit overnight and uh, went looking for a job. And there was a magazine, a glossy magazine in Bombay at that time called Society. I think it's still there. And the editor there just gave me a chance saying, yeah, join from Monday. So (laughs) I was happy. And it ended up being an amazing learning for a year, you know, on the job. I was a cub reporter, but it made me realize that that's exactly what I wanted to do. So that was the switch. That's really good. Can you talk about how you've got to the point where you've become you know, a natural explorer. You can tell us a little bit more about your grant, where it has taken you, and what kind of challenges have you faced during the course of this grant? Sure. I've wandered a bunch since those days from society. I went to the US and I was in corporate life for 10 years and came back here and I was in corporate here as well. And then I decided it was time for me to do what I really loved. And so I quit the job. And then I had to start from scratch because nobody knew me. and I knew nobody and I didn't have a body of work. And so I had some savings from my corporate life and I ended up using all of it, blowing all of it, going into fields and building a body of work. And I had decided early on that I was interested in reporting on underreported issues that have to do with the environment, especially freshwater issues. And the reason I chose that was because I was privy right from childhood to raucous debates between my dad and my uncles about demerits of large dams, my father being whole hog against it. And I kind of knew that there was a lot happening in that area in the world, but also very much in India. And I knew that I wanted to report on rivers and uh, how we treat our freshwater bodies, because that really is our lifeline. And so I started going to the desert. That's an odd place to pick, but I knew that there was a very ancient method of rainwater harvesting that was being resurrected in the desert. And so I started visiting the desert. I went there every month for about a year and a half and 
I learned the rhythm of the desert. And that's when I realized that some of these stories, these stories that have to do with environment, are slow burn. They're not something that I can go for a week to some place and report on. It has to be followed over time and it has to be followed over seasons, sometimes over years to understand what's happening to the land. And I made a conscious decision there to be a slow journalist. And what that means is basically stick with a subject, maybe even just one story, but stick with it until you can understand the implications, why we got to where we are and where we're going from here. And so that was really important for me. And I kept doing that. I think I stuck with it for about five years. This was 2013 that I went, started going to the desert. And about 2018 is when I wrote for the grant and I got it. And before that, I wrote for many grants and didn't get it. So it's been a tough five to six years. But then when I got this grant, it's just opened a lot of doors. And that, that I think is really amazing, uh, you know, in terms of just how much you can reach out to people when, you know, you have a name like National Geographic behind you. So you talked about uh, slow journalism and most of your articles veer toward this long form journalism. Do you think this is like the right way forward for the average guy on the street to get to grips with the climate change narrative, so to speak? You know, that's a very good question. And I must say that while, yes, I do do long form journalism, I'm very active on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook and, and so on. So I completely realize that not everybody A, is going to read in English, and B, is going to read 4,000 words or 2,000 words or whatever it is, right? Moreover, there are so many things, so many tools today that are available to storytellers where we can actually bring so many aspects of the story out using those tools, photography, videos, all of that. And so I don't limit myself to words. I never have. I've always, always gone with the visual side of storytelling as well as the uh, written, the literary, narrative, nonfiction side of it. And they've always been together. So even now when I go out to do a story, I'm doing both or all three things, including video. And it's it's really hard <laughs> because I usually work alone, but I can't see myself doing it any other way. And two reasons. One is there is a visual overload today. Everybody has so many images. But we are also, I'm talking about an extremely nuanced and scientific topic, which is the environment and climate change and all of that. And very often, one photograph misleads the viewer. People can think that something is happening when really what's happening is something very different. And so combining media, combining words, uh, video, and photography, and art, and art too, to reach as many people as possible is my goal. It's not just one or the other. So you talked about social media and visuals, right? Like and mm -hmm. visuals play such a big role, especially on social media, because it's, like you said, it's that one photo, right? And then how you interpret it kind of becomes a story. Do you think people can, you know, get visual fatigue with like, say, especially when you talk about the environment and you have repeated images of every year there is potentially a flood that happens in lots of corners of the planet. So do you think people get like, is it the same thing that's kind of, you know, being thrown at them? And do you think people get tired of this? Again, an extremely good question. That's why you need slow journalism, because the floods are happening, but the floods are a symptom of a problem. You're only seeing something that's caused by something probably spatially and temporally very far removed from the flood itself, the actual event itself. And this quick social media post and get out kind of culture 
it floods us with these images, but it doesn't give us context. It doesn't give us the depth of knowledge that you need to understand what is happening. And that's why I've tried very hard. I rarely post pictures of floods, but if I do post a picture of a flood, it's very clearly why this is happening. You know, I, I make sure that I say that or even point to structures that are the cause of floods or just policies and things like that that are causes of floods. And polar bears, I mean, yeah, everybody knows that ice caps are melting, yes, but climate change is much more than the ice caps melting. It does have, for example, something simple, right? Like if you look at the X amount of rainfall that falls in a place in Karnataka, where I live, the total amount of rainfall in a year has not changed. So everybody's saying, ha, so what? But it's the pattern. The rain has started falling when they're not cultivating crops. It's not falling when they are cultivating crops. That's when they need the rain. So while the total amount of rainfall falling in a place is the same, the patterns have changed. And so it's really hurting life. And that also is climate change. That is climate change. And so the kinds of photographs, and I feel a lot of that is because of maybe the narrative is controlled by a certain group of people or a certain geography, which is why we see certain things over and over again. But if we look and do the homework for where we are and see how climate change is affecting us over here, it's myriad ways, so many ways. Trees in Bangalore are flowering so way out of time and out of whack with what they normally flower, you know? Mm. It's the same thing is happening in other parts of the world and our country as well, which all have implications for fruiting, for birds, for uh, migration of animals, for lots of different things. And so there's a lot, lot of aspects to climate change. And the same thing that's pushed by a few very well-known media outlets and people almost does a disservice because, yes, it does cause fatigue. People just roll their eyes when they hear climate change. But, you know, it's going to affect where your next lentils and rice comes from <laughs> or doesn't come from, you know? Yeah. It's important to understand that. And, and I think all of our storytellers need to do a better job in broadening the discussion and uh, bringing in more voices and photographs from different places and really getting to the crux of why some of this is happening and what we can do about it. So in terms of that, then what do you think of the quality of the climate change narrative that's being reported in India and in the media? And is there something you'd like to change about that? <laughs> yes, lots of it. <laughs> I'd like to change it all. <laughs> you know, again, a lot of aspects to it. There's red and then there's the whole concept of green energy and then coal and, you know, all of that, right? And as well as other things that we already spoke about, like how climate change is affecting life on ground. But even these other things like, oh, we have to plant trees. Those are bumper sticker slogans, you know, trillion trees, whatever. But on ground, A, something like that is extremely detrimental. And B, our milieu, where we are, India, we have so many different ecosystems. And you can't, for example, plant trees on grasslands and expect it to be okay. That is absolutely wrong. And that's not how it works. So understanding what's happening or what's right for our country and not just our country as a whole. For example, what's right for maybe Gujarat is not right for Rajasthan, even though they're neighboring places, because you have biogeographic regions that change between those two states. So understanding the land, understanding our geographies and reporting from that space then is far more meaningful than just taking, oh yeah, we have to decrease our carbon footprint and therefore we go and cover 
three-fourths of a desert with because it's wasteland, first of all. You target the desert because it's quote-unquote wasteland, which it isn't. And you cover it with uh, solar panels, and then you think you've done a very great thing. But, you know, you have destroyed an ecosystem in the process, or you have taken over land from people, pastoralists, who now don't have a livelihood because their grazing lands are gone. So there are so many aspects to this that we need to pay attention to that I feel we're not paying attention to. Was Sundarbans kind of like a starting point or is that something that's happened through the course of your journey? Your images there, are they feel so profound to me. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Sundarbans came because I was working around rivers and I had decided to concentrate on the Ganga Brahmaputra Basin. And the delta of that largest basin in the world is the Sundarbans. So that's how it happened. And I first went to Sundarbans on the Bangladeshi side and it's breathtaking. The whole place, it blows your mind away. And then a few months after that visit was when the oil spill happened in the Sundarbans. So I had to go back to Bangladesh because I wanted to see what had happened to all of these places that I'd just seen a few months ago, which was just beautiful. And then it was painted with this black stripe of thick oil. So yeah, Sundarbans was almost like a large part of my river diaries, which are still continuing work and uh, documenting the basin and how changes are affecting the Ganga Brahmaputra Basin. There are, again, so many aspects to Sundarbans that most people going there as tourists and wanting to see the Sundarbans tiger, the Bengal tiger that's in the Sundarbans, they don't even realize the kind of place they're in and how treacherous it is and how people try to eke out a living in that region. It's, again, many-faceted. It's something that I will continue doing probably for the rest of my life. I have lifelong friendships there with people who have lost so much to the tiger and to government policies and everything. So it's something that I will continue doing. It's not a story that's over for me. It's a crazy place. It's, you know, we think it's so beautiful, but it can be so treacherous as well. One of your um, hashtags on Twitter, sorry, I just noticed that thing with yesterday or was rivers are not pipes. Can you talk a little bit more about this and, and does this relate specifically to policy, a particular state policy, or is it just you think that's something that's happening overall in India? Yeah, it's happening overall in India. It's the whole river linking policy where we assume that one river in the north of the country is the same as another river in the south of the country and you can just join them with a pipe and a canal and everything's okay. And the whole concept of surplus water in a basin and that water should not go waste to the sea. All of these things are concepts that are flawed. If you ask any hydrologist worth his salt, any ecologist worth her salt, anybody who has done work and understood the land, they'll tell you that this is completely misguided, what's happening in India. And I think that uh, particular hashtag was, was born out of this news that Karnataka wanted to divert its west-flowing rivers into uh, lakes and every village have a lake which is fed by river water. And it's such a flawed concept because where does the river get its water from? It gets it from rain, right? And this rain is stuff that falls to varying degrees in many places. And we can do very well trying to catch the rain that falls on our land, to catch every drop that falls on our land and be self-sufficient, decentralized in that sense with water supply, but be very happy with the amount of rain that South India gets. And so... This very notion of taking one river somewhere, diverting it, and 
bringing the water somewhere else a it's causing a lot of destruction to the ecosystem that the river is in and b it can create havoc with even the ecosystem that it's coming to for example the whole indira gandhi canal which is again a huge pipe if you if you think about it that way which is diverting himalayan water which is from the satluj from uh, punjab at harike all the way down to jaisalmer and what has ended up happening is a there's not enough water to even reach jaisalmer b the agriculture in jaisalmer due to that kind of the soil is experiencing salinity and water logging because that's not supposed to be that way it, the desert was never meant for that kind of agriculture and uh, see the district that had never seen a mosquito is now the highest incidence of malaria in rajasthan because of water that has come there from you know putrid water it's stagnant water there's not enough water to be replenished all kinds of problems right mm-hmm. this is just one instance it plays out everywhere all over the country and it's basically because we're not understanding what the function of a river is you're saying that you should not let river water go waste to the sea how do you think your fish nurseries which are estuaries are going to thrive if you take off the fresh water that comes in from the river and a much worse example is take the sundarbans for example the sundarbans is sinking we call it climate change and river and sea levels rising but there's a much bigger problem there's a dam upstream which is diverting water to fields and stuff like that which is also holding back the silt which is what builds deltas with every season of flood it brings the silt and drops it on the delta so that the delta can fortify itself from the sea and storm surges but we're withholding that silt now with withholding the fresh water so of course it's becoming more saline and it's sinking and then we blame climate change so you know climate change is also becoming this convenient scapegoat when the proximal cause of many of these issues is man-made policies and man-made things structures like dams and so on and diversions so yeah rivers are not pipes <laughs> that's a big thing for me um it's also you know again comes back to this fundamental very engineering outlook maybe this thing works for europe maybe the rhine and the thames and all of those rivers they're not silt carrying rivers which our subcontinent has and so maybe this the kinds of systems that the british thought would work is good for them but it's not good for us and it's it behooves us to start thinking about how does our land work and what's good for our resilience you know in the face of looming climate change very very insightful indeed i'm going to move a little bit away and you just slow walking with paul salopek so that seemed like a challenging yet fun and were there any instances that stand out from your time spent with him oh yeah so i mean everything <laughs> <laughs> first of all we we decided to start walking through the indian desert the thar desert during summer so we were walking in wow. 49 three days and so all of that was really interesting but more than that i think you know meeting paul who is a two time pulitzer prize winner and you know extremely well regarded in the journalism circles and as an explorer he's a national geographic fellow i think spending time with him i learned how accessible even people like i mean you know people who are at the top of their game can be and how humble they are and how open they are to experiences and there have been numerous instances when we'd be walking and things would happen and we'd look at each other and we'd realize that we're, we're joined by this because he's a white guy i'm an indian girl right i mean we're completely different right our our experiences through the same uh, landscape even was was very different our observations were very different but 
there were these times when things would happen where we'd, you know, just exchange glances and know that we're all kind of joined in one massive fabric of humanity, which, you know, there's, there's this commonality that's between us and how we perceive the world. And that, I think, was was beautiful. Even today, I mean, I was supposed to speak to him yesterday. I couldn't make it. But, you know, we're in touch. And we when we pick up the phone, it's like we never left off. You know, I think walking through a landscape day in and day out, and we did 600 kilometers through Punjab and Rajasthan together, and then another 100 in Manipur, I think that just kind of forges a bond or of shared experiences that's like no other. And you also, walking through a landscape, you get to, to really understand it. And I think it opened my eyes to, to what those landscapes are and, and how the people who live there, you know, and we went through places that you'd never see in the news and sometimes we're not even on Google Maps. And so we were like, okay, now how do we go from here? And we actually walked through dunes, over dunes and places we had to ask people and they'd be like, why are you guys here? You know, you should be on the main road. And we were like, no, 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 we don't want to be on the main road. We're happy being off the road, but tell us how to get to some place. And there were places that had never seen a white guy since independence. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was fabulous, that experience of seeing your country a through his lens, but also seeing your country like you would never have seen it otherwise. Who's going to walk from all the way from Vaga to Jaipur? You don't do that every day. And it was just, I think, invaluable. Taught me so much. And, and how did people take this idea of slow walking? Like when you, if you met people and you talked about it, I mean, even if you say slow journalism and you say slow walking, by definition, it's understood it's going to take time. So how do people, especially given like now everything is instantaneous, right? You want everything instantly. Yeah. So, for example, we'd be in this village and we'd ask them how to get to the next village. And they say, yahan se chale jao. And we're like, nee, 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 kilometers Ye aegi abhi lo aur jao. And we're like, nee, paidal jana hai. And they'd look at us and say, Faridkot tak paidal jana hai. And we're like, yes. And they'd be like, they'd look at each other and they'd think that we're absolute idiots. Because there was Paul, there was me, there was our little donkey, Raju. And uh, there was the donkey handler. And they'd look at us and say, where have these people come from? Or what are they doing? There was this one time when we didn't yet have Raju with us. It was just uh, Paul and I walking. We reached this place and there was no hotel. It was a really tiny village in Punjab. And there was no hotel or anything. And they said, yeah, the hotel is in um, Firozpur. And we said, and how far is Firozpur? Yeah, it's about 12 kilometers away. And it was dusk already. And they said, uh, yeah, just take a taxi and go. I said, no, 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 we can't take a taxi because we're walking. We'll have to walk then. We can't do another 12 kilometers. They're like, they looked at us and said, why would you have to walk? To <laughs> they were like, there are so many buses. There are so many taxis. I can get my motorcycle. Let's, we can take you anywhere you want. You know? <laughs> so I think people found the whole concept of walking from place to place in such a time. Ridiculous. But it was also funny because we were walking and then there would be a car that would drive up to our, on our side and then drive alongside us for a while saying, are you sure you're OK? Do you need any help? Can I get you anything? There would be people who would drive ahead to a, the dhaba and bring us back water, bring us back juice, you know. Wow. So I think okay. while on one hand they thought we were absolutely dumb or crazy <laughs> they almost adopted us and they wanted to look after us <laughs> it, was, it was really nice so yeah it was I think the whole concept of walking through a landscape it's alien because of how car-brained we've become that's a very Paul Salafek word he calls everybody <laughs> car brains 
<laughs> but it's also how much we miss when we go in a car, you know, and how much you see when you're walking, when you slow down. And to a storyteller, that is invaluable. It's invaluable. If anybody asks me today, what is your advice to somebody starting out in storytelling? I tell them to buy a pair of walking shoes. Mm, invaluable advice. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, it was to me too. I mean, you just have to do it that way if you want to understand a place or a story. Oh, it sounds wonderful. It sounds absolutely wonderful. So we've heard that you're working on your first book. Are you allowed to talk, you know, about it? A little bit, yes. <laughs> it's just more of what I do. That is, move through landscapes and see how things have changed and so on. So uh, if all the stars align and I do my work, <laughs> if my editor is hearing this, she's going to be rolling her eyes because I've already bought more time off her. But yeah, it should be out uh, towards the end of this year, early next year, the latest. Oh, sounds brilliant. So you also co-founded the PP project. What were the project's origin. And, you know, I'm sure listeners would like to hear more about that. Yeah. So my editor, Prem Panikar, I met him again on the, on social media. All of my work has come through social media, all of my contacts, my sources, almost everything has been through social media. So I really, I'm quite wedded to, <laughs> to the medium. But, you know, when he and I met way back in 2012, late 2012, I had told him that what I want to do is tell stories of the human pace of life. And he, at that time, I thought, what? You know, he was then the editor of Yahoo. And he, however, when 2013 dawned and I went to Rajasthan for the first time, I called him from there and I said, you know, I can't come back with a story right now. I need to come back to this place over and over to be able to see it. He said, how long do you think that's going to take? I said, probably a year. So he was like, hmm, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I said, no, give me this chance. And he said, I'll publish it whenever your uh, story is ready. So I, of course spent the money out of pocket. But in that process, mine through Rajasthan and then afterwards River Diaries, where Yahoo commissioned me to do those River Diaries, we both realized that you cannot really tell what is happening in a country if you don't stick with something. It's almost like beat reporting, where you go out and you're looking at one topic over time to see how things are shaping up. And Peeply is the essence of that. So we had three of us, Rahul Bhatia, uh, Kalyan Verma, and I, who were out in the field doing our work, but essentially concentrating on one topic, one large topic, but looking at how various uh, communities and ecosystems negotiated their lives through time. You know, So we realized that if policymakers want to understand something, they need to know where we've come from, you know? So what's the history of this place? And that's the right way to do it. And so we really wanted to build a robust site with about four or five vectors. Uh, freshwater was one, Kalyan's nature without borders, which is human and wild animal relationship. Uh, in India, that's a big one. And development, which was Rahul's uh, forte, and then build it up to, you know, include law and women's issues and public health and so on. And then be able to start seeing how the picture builds of what India is, because you're going to start finding, for example, my work, Freshwater, is going to intersect with health. It's going to intersect with women. It's going to intersect with law. It's going to intersect with nature. You know, it, it, you're going to find these patterns coming out. And we really wanted an in-depth reporting medium where it's not just one day, one lake is on fire and you scream about it and then you forget about it for three years, that kind of thing. 
you follow, you follow and see what's happening so that you can actually affect change. That was our goal. But that kind of reporting, you know, where you're day in and day out, out in the field for months together and, you know, you're still probably not publishing. You're going to come back to tell the story. There are very few outlets, like a National Geographic does things like that, where it sends out the reporter for a year or two years and then they come back with the story. So you need a lot of resources to be able to make that happen. And unfortunately, that's where we ran up against a wall because we couldn't find funding. But I think India, given where it is and what it wants to achieve, we really need to understand issues deeply. And for that, that kind of journalism is is imperative. Has any of your work kind of impacted policy or has it impacted your people? Like, you know, have people come up to you and said, it's because of what you've done that this has happened. Has that scenario ever happened with you? It's in, in varying degrees. Those things take time. And I think if people had continued and we had stuck with it, there would have been quite a few of those kinds of issues to be able to you know point to and say this has happened. But I do know that, like, for example, my stories around the rainwater harvesting in Rajasthan were deeply appreciated by the people because they understood what is happening and they started realizing you know, what they can do in their own places and very decentralized. The person who came up to me was in Delhi, but they understood how they can apply it in their own lives. And then there was a TED talk that I did, which again, you know, I kind of connected what was happening in Rajasthan also applies to maybe what's happening in Bangalore where wells are going dry. And so a lot of those things you see resonating in people and things happening to affect change. In terms of policy itself, I think people came in 2015 and we've had a new government from 2014 onwards. I think it's been a different kind of trajectory that they're on. And it's going to be an uphill task to be able to influence policy in a big way. But I think little wins, even in terms of consumer habit change or understanding of an issue and therefore an NGO taking up something somewhere else, a lot of those kinds of things we are seeing. Because of such reporting, Kalyan has seen it happen with his elephant story, for example, and so on. So I think little changes, yes, but to affect big policy, that's our our dream. And I think we need the backing of like, you know, a ProPublica or something where you can actually go out and do something with and not be afraid of running out of budget and, you know, be able to tell the story in a way that it makes people sit up and not ignore it anymore. I mean, going with that, and what do you think Indian audiences need to understand much better about, you know, what's happening with environment and climate change? Is there anything unique about what's happening with regard to climate change in India? What we need to understand, I think, is that what is right for the West may not be right for us. And the fact that we need to have the intellectual honesty to look at what our land is saying to us. So, for example, growing paddy in Punjab is not necessarily a good idea. Growing sugarcane in parts of Karnataka, which are semi-arid and dry land, is not a good idea. So I would love for the Indian audience to ask questions, you know, to not just adopt. For example, someone says, let's plant a billion trees. And everybody goes, says, oh, yeah, let's plant a billion trees and save the Kaveri. And let's ask questions as to, is that the right thing? Let's listen to science. Let's listen to scientists who are in the field who are working Let's try and understand or sift the propaganda from what's real and what's true. You know, if we can ask those questions and even begin to ask those questions and not just take what somebody who is very powerful or very rich or uh, somebody you think is somebody who can be believed, instead of blindly believing them, just question everything. I think we really need that right now. We're living in 
odd times, you know, where news is can be true, it can be completely fabricated, it can be somewhere in between. And I think if we give up that scientific temper that we should all have in terms of just asking why or where, let's just go and dig up three more sources, go and dig up, do a little bit more research to understand things. I think it will help us in the long run. Lastly, any last words for our listeners? Is there something that we should be doing? And maybe it's on social media, maybe it's on the ground. What would you suggest? Yeah, I think I would just say that, you know, don't lose your connection with the earth. Because the minute you start believing that your water comes out only out of a tap, and it's not connected to, say, something far away in Kurk, you're going to lose the plot. So I think, you know, just following things back to origins and just understanding the connectedness of the world and how we connect to each other and to various things. The destruction of a single animal or an insect somewhere could very much affect what you eat, you know, what comes on your table. So those connections, I think, you know, make those connections and understand that, you know, if you change one thing in some place, be sure that it's going to affect a whole host of things because everything's connected. Thank you so much, Aarti. I've had a wonderful time talking to you. Likewise, <laughs> Kirti, likewise. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. 